Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we continue our journey through comic book history as we talk with guest Jessica Plummer about the Bronze Age of comics from 1970 to 1980. All that more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back, I'm Matthew. And Jessica, at this point, I don't really think I can call you a guest anymore because we pretty much have just a whole new section of the podcast that you and I have created. And of course, you're a co-host. So I will <laughs> welcome my co-host for the Comic Book History uh, Podcast, Jessica Plummer. How are we doing today? Thank you. I think I've, I've earned myself like a Cousin Oliver spot or something. I'm just not go. leaving. <laughs> uh, I'm doing good. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Uh, you know, it's been a great run talking about Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and it's now uh, had a lot of fun with that, but nice to maybe expand our, our view a little bit to some other properties. So looking well, forward to getting into this conversation. We're still going to be talking about Falcon, but uh, no Winter Soldier at this particular point in time. That makes sense. That makes sense. I will say, by the way, that there's an episode of um, Fat Man Beyond, which is the show that Kevin Smith and Mark Bernardin do as a podcast, and they had the creator of um, The Winter Soldier on talking about sort of how he created the character and, and how he feels about where the character went. Especially oh, Ed the, Brubaker? The now. Yes. Yeah. 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 He was a great interview, and so definitely worth checking that out. It'll be a couple weeks. Uh, we're recording this a couple weeks before it's going to go up, so that'll be a, a couple episodes back on the Batman Beyond, but definitely worth checking out. Yeah, Brubaker, he's done some really good stuff. Um, I really love his Daredevil run as well. Mm, awesome. So... Let's let's get right into this. When we say, I think a lot of people have at least heard the terms the the golden age and the silver age when it comes to comics. Bronze age, you know, I mean, it's the it's the next metal down, so it makes sense that's the next in the naming characteristic. But I think a lot of folks don't even really know what we mean by this. What first of all, just what are the dates that um, transcribe the the bronze age, and, and how do we define it? Why are those dates picked? Um, yeah, so the bronze age. Uh, I mean, like with all of the quote-unquote comics ages, people are going to disagree on exactly where to set them. I always think of it as uh, stretching from approximately 1970, um, Mm -hmm. and many people will pin that starting moment to the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow series by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, um, because it, it really sort of changed the landscape of both of those characters and, and how to talk about social justice issues in comics, et cetera. Um, and they end it, a lot of people, especially if you're on the DC side of things, will end it around 1984 um, because I was born then. And obviously the, <laughs> after that, it's the Jess age. No, um, because 1985 was Crisis on Infinite Earths. And so um, it, that was like a real seismic shift just for the actual content of DC Comics. Um, but uh, I was actually looking at um, the the company Folio makes these beautiful collections um, of like classic Marvel comics, these like massive doorstopper volumes mm-hmm. um, that they break down by era. And I noticed just the other day that they define the Marvel Bronze Age as 1970 to 1980. And honestly, there are plenty of comics from like 68, 69 that, really evoke what we're going to be talking about in their comics mm-hmm. from the late 80s that also have that. So it's it's all a little nebulous. You know, I I was reading a uh, something about music history recently that I was talking about, like, when we talk about, like, 
music from the 60s. We're basically talking about stuff from like 1964 to 1972. And like the 80s pretty much started and like actually ended pretty much by like 87, 88. So, you know, I think we're, we're pretty fast and loose with these naming conventions. Yeah, for sure. But so what do we mean by the Bronze Age? What what kind of, other than it just being like the next chapter in history, like what are some of the defining aspects of this time in comic books? Um, so the what you'll notice right away if you're reading a Bronze Age comic is the, the tone <laughs> is drastically different from the Silver Age, especially at DC. It's less like majorly noticeable at Marvel because Marvel was already doing sort of soapy, angsty ongoing plot lines that was their stock in trade and mm-hmm. dc started to emulate that and so dc silver age is and marvel silver age to an extent is very silly it's very colorful it's very cartoony um mm-hmm. and you have all these like wacky stories that are essentially lighthearted. um and you know superman encounters red kryptonite and it gives him a lion head and then he (laughs) he just walks around having a lion head for a while like as you do you know it happens or like (laughs) i just now all i can think of are stories where superman characters have weird things happen to their heads like there's one where he has an (laughs) ant head and there's one where lois is keeping her head in a lead box like just every now and then you start to understand why they sometimes reboot these universes because you're like you know we're hitting a point of diminishing returns with some of these storylines perhaps um well, and actually, that's part of it. Like, back in the day, you could kind of repeat stuff because mm-hmm. the comics were for kids who would outgrow it. So one of the things that does actually distinguish the Bronze Age is sort of the rise of older fans. Um, the collectors now? Uh, yeah, starting to be collectors, not nearly to the point. The collector boom is in the 90s, but definitely okay. collectors... Um, and uh, this idea of sort of looking back into the history of the comics. Um, right. So, for example, you know, in, we talked about in earlier episodes, DC had introduced all these characters in the Golden Age, and then they rebooted them into completely new characters in the Silver Age. In the mm. Bronze Age, they brought back the original versions, and they had them interact with the new versions because there were people who had grown up on those 40s comics who were now writing comics and were like, well, I like that version of The Flash. I like that version of Green Lantern. I'm going to bring him back. Interesting. Yeah. Now, so, do you mean in a kind of a like a Hal Stewart, uh, a, a Hal Jordan meets John Stewart kind of a way? Or you mean like different versions of Kal-El Superman are, are meeting each other and two different Bruce Waynes are meeting each other? Both. Um, so John, so, so the, the Golden Age Green Lantern is uh, Alan Scott. Um, okay. So it starts with a... a Barry Allen, the Silver Age Flash, discovers he can vibrate his molecules in a specific way and travel to other dimensions. Obviously, science makes total sense. (laughs) And he manages to travel to another dimension where he meets Jay Garrick. And that's when he discovers Earth 2, as he names it. Mm. So because characters like the Flash and Green Lantern were completely rebooted, they are different people on those different in those different realities, like Barry Allen lives on Earth 1 and uh, Jay Garrick lives on Earth 2. But because Superman had never been rebooted, yes, there is a Kal-El on Earth 1 and there is a Kal-El on Earth 2 and they're just alternate versions of the same person. Interesting. But this So gives... is, this, is this when the multiverse idea really starts to come into comics? Yeah, 100%. Interesting. Yeah. 
So a lot there I want to dive into, but what are some of the other defining aspects of this time? Um, yeah, so uh, what I was starting to say was you, you get these, um, these more complex, slight, somewhat more adult stories. Like you're really aiming for teens now and not so much little kids. Um, there's, there's a lot more angst. Um, they're still very silly. Like I actually, to be honest, don't love Bronze Age comics because I find the characters very whiny, but the problems they're dealing with are still very silly. <laughs> Uh-huh. So it's like this very jarring effect where I'm like, this is not a real problem. Get over it. Like <laughs> that's legitimate. Yeah, like all the all the tropes that came up in the Silver Age are still inherited. So it's like, oh no, Lois has fallen in love with my Superman robot, not me. But like, then you're gonna mope about it for twenty pages. Like I don't have time for this, Clark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, these these more adult plot lines, um, they started to tackle subject matter that previously could not be addressed because of the Comics Code Authority, which was weakening at this point. That was so, one of my first questions, yeah. So it's, yeah. It, that that's being less of a, a force? Absolutely. So you start to see things like um, drugs, which we're definitely going to talk about. There's a couple of really major storylines involving drugs and another one involving alcoholism during this era. Um, mm, wow. Like you couldn't show drugs at all before. Uh, you start to see um, uh, just a more complicated approach to morality where it's like you're not either 100% good or 100% bad. Like you have a lot of reformed villains who are becoming heroes. Like and this is a little bit earlier, but you have characters like Black Widow and Hawkeye who originally appear as bad guys and then become superheroes. Um, you have... The, the costumes for the women get a lot sexier. Okay. You get more femme, femme fatales are allowed again. Like Catwoman uh-huh. comes back. She disappeared for a while, but she's back now. Yeah, I don't know how you could do Catwoman not as a femme fatale. Well, you like, can't. And that's why she literally didn't appear in comics for 10 years. That makes sense. She was too sexy. And she was, <laughs> it was, she was too sexy and she was too unrepentant. Mm. like she was she didn't feel bad about what she was doing nor should she because she's right about everything um what else uh you definitely start to see more diversity like not a lot of it but this is where the majority of like basically every classic black character in comics except for black panther who uh, had already existed for a few years at this point all the others appear during this era um not every black character, but like the the classic like Storm and Luke Cage and Cyborg, like the ones that people know about. Mm-hmm. Misty Knight and Blade and some of those, yeah. Exactly. And Blade is another perfect example because you start to see vampires, which were not allowed. Oh, right. Yeah. So the the code is breaking down in all sorts of ways where like on the one hand, it's like, great, we get to have black heroes. And on the other hand, it's like, oh, vampires too i guess that's cool like (laughs) i didn't need them but it was a silly rule yeah that makes sense yeah it sounds like it's a really fascinating time and i I can see how like there's sort of a sense of like the chains are off yeah now one thing i'm curious about is i know we've talked in the before especially in the last couple episodes about how one of the big changes was that while dc had had these kind of like larger than life almost demigod type characters you know marvel really wanted you know, you look up to Kal-El Superman, you relate to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Um, are we now starting to get DC characters that are also more relatable? Not that they're copying Marvel, but is that is that kind of like adjusting a little bit? 
I just, I can't believe how perfect a setup you just gave me. <laughs> like, it's, it's so, like, I, I feel like you did this on purpose because you said the chains are off. <laughs> One oh of the most famous Bronze Age covers in existence. Oh boy. <laughs> is a Superman cover where he is, he's wrapped in kryptonite chains, but he's breaking them. He's like, you know, swelling up his chest and he's breaking them and it's called kryptonite no more okay like there's it's on the in huge letters says kryptonite no more on the cover um and yeah they started to i mean that that sort of implies that he doesn't have a weakness anymore but what that actually was was a part of really starting to reinvent the character of superman because he was so powerful Mm -hmm. so they did in a lot of ways try to really bring him back down to earth uh literally and figuratively and and mess around with that formula to make him more interesting and they got rid of his kryptonite weakness for a while and then of course they brought it back because you know it's kryptonite um you do but yeah you do start to see that um one pretty well-known example um is wonder woman uh gave up her powers for a while um she this is i want to say this actually came about in the very late 60s like this might have been one of those like 1969 things um but it might have been 1970 or 71 um she uh basically the amazons decided to depart from man's world because it it was so you know sinful or whatever and she was like but i can't leave steve trevor lives in man's world and i love him and the amazons Mm -hmm. were like okay but you can't have your powers if you're going to stay so she gives them up she starts dressing like Emma Peel from the Avengers, which, <laughs> I mean, the the outfits during this era are so good. Like, she, I understand that people, specifically Gloria Steinem, did not like this uh, plot development. I get why, but she looks so good. Yeah. Um, but because she doesn't have superpowers, she has to learn martial arts from an old blind Chinese man named I Ching or I Ching. I'm not sure of the correct way to pronounce it, but it's okay. Um, real so problematic. Are bringing not white characters into the into the universe is not always in the the most helpful of ways. Is what I'm getting from this. There there are a lot of uh, wise elderly Asian martial arts mentors who mm-hmm. exist only to teach white people how to do Kung Fu real good. And this is definitely an example of that. Um, Although a few years ago, there was a comic um, called uh, The New Superman, which is Mm -hmm. about uh, a kid in China who is given superpowers and becomes like the Superman of China. And it's excellent. Um, And that, reimagines uh, I Ching or I Ching in a really, really cool way. So I highly, highly recommend that. It's by Jean awesome. Luen Yang, who also did uh, Superman Smashes the Clan, the best comic ever written. So <laughs> definitely check that out. But um, but yeah, so Wonder Woman doesn't have her powers for a while, and she got them back in large part because Gloria Steinem like, basically organized a letter-writing campaign and was like, give her her powers back. What is this crap? She's Wonder Woman. Right. Um, And of course, Wonder Woman was famously on the first, the cover of the first issue of Ms. Magazine with her classic costume and her powers. 
Yeah, let's talk about that some because in the past we've been talking about how these are mostly like a kids thing, um, and certainly for, I was already kind of wondering if part of what's happening is that the the audience that these are intended for are being aged up a bit. Now maybe we're looking at more like tweens and teenagers, uh, but also this is the time when, as you said, like Gloria Steinem, like a foundational part of the the feminist movement at this time, is very publicly naming Wonder Woman as an icon. Um, is this about kind of a much more is it because you think that like this is the generation that grew up reading comic books themselves or that comic books have become more like I can't imagine in the 50s someone naming Bruce Wayne or, or Superman as sort of part of a major political movement. Uh, it, it, so what, what's changing here? Yeah, I mean, at that at, at this point, these characters have all been around for, you know, about 30 years. And that is a pretty good chunk of time to be sort of generationally significant. It's like, right. you know how you and I feel about like DuckTales, you yeah, know, exactly. <laughs> this is a formative thing from our childhood and we have some really strong opinions on Scrooge McDuck. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I know that I do. Um, so yeah, you wouldn't have seen that in the fifties because even though everybody knew who Super- Superman was, like he was, he was a household name almost immediately. Right. It, there, you didn't have the same feeling of this was my childhood. I grew up on this. Um, but right. yeah, absolutely. Like I said, that age, um, that readership is shifting. Comics are still not really uh, primarily read by adults or for adults. They are still for kids and teens. But, you know, they're like a Superman comic from 1957 is for like a six year old. And. Right. A uh, Superman comic from 1977 is for like a 14 year old. That makes sense. That makes sense. And especially given how much um, you know, Miz was supposed to be about like women and girls. Like it totally makes sense that they draw that from that. It also strikes me as, you know, I mean, we, we were earlier we're talking about the comics code and how like <clears throat> for a while comic books were very much like Eisenhower's America. You know, like everything is right and perfect and good. Gloria Steinem and the Miz Foundation, I mean, even today, but especially at that time, like, they represent a very important progressive wing of American politics, but very far, they're certainly not mainstream. Is that also sort of an interesting thing of, because my understanding is that DC, did she just sort of pick that on her own, or is DC actually kind of involved in a partnership there? Yeah, from what I can tell, uh, as far as I know, DC was not, I mean, they had to give her the rights to use the the character on the cover, but they weren't. It wasn't a partnership in, in any real significant way. Um, they did, you know, see that fans wanted Diana to be back in her classic look with her powers, but it wasn't like they were really trying to push the the boundaries of what they could do with Wonder Woman mm-hmm. in the comics at this point. And like, I don't, I don't want to give you a false impression here. Uh, I have never read anything from the Bronze Age that made me feel like women's lib was even the slightest bit respected by anybody working at either company. Okay, like, got it. So so this, this may have been somewhat of a stretch of <laughs> claiming Wonder Woman as the guy. I mean, I, I guess it's, I, I shouldn't actually say that. I can I, I very much understand why it was, but it's also not, it, it may not be as direct a connection as, as we might think. Right. And I think it's very fair to say that Wonder Woman as an icon who is 30 years old at that time or more than that and who is 80 years old this year Mm. uh, is in and of herself a feminist icon both for some of the stories she has been in 
but more importantly for what she has meant to so many people over those decades, regardless of whether or not every person who ever worked on her stuff was actually a feminist. Right. But you didn't have, I mean, granted, we didn't have the uh, uh, right wing kind of boycotts back then as much, but you didn't have the moral majority or someone else saying like, oh, we should stop buying Wonder Woman because it's associated with these, you know, crazy feminists or anything like that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I actually have no idea. That would be really interesting. Um, but I, I mean, I can't. Wonder Woman at the time was still a comic intended for kids. So I can't in, I imagine that, you know, conservative, angry old men would be like, I'll stop reading this because they weren't. Right. Right. I mean, it might have been like, you know, I mean, today I'm sure they would be like, you know, we must make our kids or our grandkids stop reading it. But it's somewhat of a different world today. Yeah. And so this is actually kind of a good, um, I think, segue into you're hinting at or you're talking a little bit about it. But let's go deeper. So this is obviously a time when we get a lot more um, diversity in our characters, especially of black characters and Asian characters. I know were ones you mentioned and a couple of Native American as well. Talk some about, um, you know, why why that's happening and what's going on at at this time. Yeah, so, I mean, why that's happening, it's, I I wasn't there, but it's a pretty, I think, clear response to the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Um, It is is a bit delayed because comics do tend to be a bit delayed. Um, But especially with black characters, we start to see just a massive proportionate increase, like a relative increase in how many there are, which is not to say that there are a lot, right? but it becomes a case where every team of like eight characters now has a black person on it. And mm, okay. to be, to be more specific now has a black guy or storm. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's not like, there, there. It is still both DC and Marvel, and I'm sure other companies that existed at this time were overwhelmingly white. Like, right. I don't want to imply that there is any kind of parity that is happening here, um, but you do start to see the introduction of these major iconic uh, black characters. Um, I'm not going to name all of them, but. Uh, Marvel already had Black Panther, but we see the introduction of the Falcon in 1969, um, Luke Cage in 1972, along with Misty Knight, Blade in 73. um, And over in DC, their first Black hero was actually Mal Duncan on the Teen Titans, but it's often in 1970, but people will often say it's actually Jon Stewart, Mm. Green Lantern in 1971. Because Mal didn't have a superhero code name for a few years. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. You also see Nubia in 1973 is Wonder Woman's twin sister, who is black. Okay. Um, That's kind of cool. Yeah. There's actually a wonderful, wonderful YA graphic novel that literally just came out like last month about Nubia that I highly recommend. It's called Nubia Real One. Pick it up. It's excellent. Um uh, who else? Black Lightning in 1977, Cyborg in 1980, and Vixen in 1981, who was supposed to be DC's first um, black female character to have her own series. Mm-hmm. But there was something uh, 
she was actually supposed to appear in the late 70s, um, but there was something called the DC implosion where they had planned tons of new comics and they had advertised for them and they had they were all partially or completely written and drawn and then the market just kind of collapsed out from under them and a lot of these books did not Mm, ever actually get published so Vixen was supposed to show up in like 77 or something and in her own book and actually did not appear until 81 in like a Superman story Um, but yeah you start to see these characters um, who are all you know we see them in movies now in TV shows and cartoons um, and I should also note that from what I can tell, I mean, there was not a single black creator involved right. in any of them. Um, the artist who created Cyborg is Puerto Rican. Okay. But overwhelmingly... Uh, this is white people it, trying to tell the stories of, of people of color. Absolutely. It, right. it is all white people. Um, there were a handful of black creators working in the industry. I mean, there were plenty of black people working in the industry, but I mean, specifically at DC and Marvel um, in the late bronze age. But yeah, all of these characters are basically white creations. Um, Many of them have since been uh, written by black writers who have brought, you know, more uh, depth to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But so... I I am saying this from the perspective of I would hope a well-meaning but probably often very clueless white person. I do think that by and large there were good intentions at play here that um right the the intent was to uh include black characters show black children that they could be heroes like to to add diversity to these universes because it's the right thing to do but it is often done in an extremely clumsy way right there is you know just the the dialect alone for some of these characters oh i'm sure what am i is good Oh no! Go ahead. Well, and my understanding is that, and again, I'm 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 just going on some of what I've read, but but uh, actually, the the creator of of the TV show Luke Cage said a good deal about this. That you you know, it's not coincidental that both with these and with the the, the Asian characters who are starting to get added, this is the era when black exploitation movies and like the whole kung fu uh, movie explosion is really happening. And my understanding, like I know that the creator of Luke Cage talked a lot about how. The original Luke Cage was very much a character sort of drawn from the stereotypes of black exploitation movies, uh, which were at that point even Hollywood. You know, that those were to some extent Hollywood, like maybe having good intentions as well as also just trying to cash in on what they saw. Um, and and so, for example, he talked about how when he made Luke Cage, there was a very conscious effort to, you know, honor those roots. And like, there's a, a moment in that show where he kind of picks up the old Power Man outfit of those days and goes, "This is ridiculous," mm-hmm. um, but also really also acknowledge that that was Luke Cage as written by white people as part of a black exploitation movement and to really make it a much more authentic character. Um, 
and and so is that also your understanding that there was a lot of like black exploitation movies and and with the Asian characters, which we'll get to the the kung fu movie craze, that that those were also big parts of driving popular culture, and that some of that was also spilling over here. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm like I said, I think there were good intentions, but absolutely there was also a look looking to profit off of a trend. Right. Um, and especially during uh, like the early seventies, when you see Luke Cage, Misty Knight, Blade, all very much black black exploitation characters. Um, so yeah, that's absolutely part of it as well. Um, and yeah, like I was saying, like the the dialect is not always great. Many of these characters, if not not all of them looking at this list, but a lot of them, you know, Falcon, Jon Stewart, Luke Cage, Black Lightning, uh, Mal Duncan, they're all, they're all from the ghetto. And uh, Falcon and Luke Cage have this history of being incarcerated in their backstories and or, or being criminals. Although I'm not sure how with the stuff with Falcon, I'm not sure whether or not that's in continuity anymore or not. Okay. It's a whole, the, there's a whole, he had a criminal alias as Snap Wilson, which is, wow. it's bad. It's bad. I think it's out of continuity again. Um, well, and it, it makes me all the happier that, again, I want to do any spoilers for folks who haven't seen the show, but the, the recently finished Falcon and the Winter Soldier really does, does a fairly deep dive into both just racism of the whole idea of, of Sam Wilson, Falcon, possibly becoming Winter Soldier, uh, yeah, possibly becoming Captain America, but also goes into some other stuff about sort of racism involved in the history of some of the government, pro- like super soldier programs and stuff like that. So uh, just a kind of uh, a, pl- a little plug for those, but also just a it, it given this history makes it feel all the more important that the shows today, like Luke Cage did, like Black Lightning did, are really trying to kind of explore those issues with new new eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also realize you and I are kind of throwing around the term black exploitation, and I, I think some of our audience may know it, but I wanted to kind of give a definition of it. Uh, black exploitation is a subgenre of movies that starts in the 1970s uh, about black people told by white people, and often, therefore, really drawing upon a lot of fairly racist stereotypes of the time. And so an awful lot of the black characters are drug dealers or are pimps or prostitutes, and things are always set in, like, the ghetto uh, quote unquote, because I mean, that's a, a really problematic term. I think as we're both understanding it, but that's the, the, the way it was framed in those terms. Um, and ironically, but not surprisingly, it, it started with two movies that were very much by black creators trying to tell black stories, uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and then later Shaft, but then very quickly became sort of adopted by white creators. So just to give context for people who are like, what's this black exploitation thing that they keep talking about? Yeah, and that's that's absolutely what you see with a lot of these characters, um, and um, they also often exist to, you know, some of them are main characters in their own right. Luke Cage was introduced to be a protagonist in his own book, um, but others are very much there to buttress white characters and help them to learn valuable lessons, so ah. like Mel... Yeah, surprise. So like Mal Duncan um, was introduced in Teen Titans when that book became, it went very abruptly from being like, let's all have a surfing contest and then go get a malted to 
there's a lot of troubles for teens in this world, and we're not going to name any of them specifically, but boy, are we angry about them. Um, and so they, there's this issue where they, they have this like weird rich guy who made them give up their costumes and wear matching lavender jumpsuits and do what he told them. And I'm like, kids, you're in a cult. Oh God. It's a cult. <laughs> it's so, it's so weird. But anyway, he's like, you have to go to the inner city and then just like stand around until you learn things. Mm-hmm. So they go to the inner city, this team of all white kids. Um, and they meet Mal who's like being picked on by a white gang and they try to rescue him, but he's like, I don't need your help. And, like wins a boxing match against the main white bully and they're like you're amazing come join the team titans and he's like well i don't know if i'm good enough but i guess i'll try yeah and then he doesn't have a code name he doesn't have a costume to be fair they are all wearing the lavender jumpsuits but eventually like they the others get their costumes back and he's still just like a guy on the team and then when the team disbands they leave him behind at their headquarters to be like the caretaker for it Oh God! Yeah, it's it's real messed up. Um, and, and pushing that a little further, you talked before about um, how drug use becomes a really important thing storyline for a lot of characters. Now, I know at least one case, Speedy. That's is this isn't the case, and I'm kind of afraid to ask this, and I hope I hope it's wrong. But is the drug use and drug selling and drug dealers are a very big part of the black exploitation film movement, at least? Is it mostly the these new black characters where issues of drugs are being introduced, or is it at least we're not going quite that bad? No, actually we're not. Um, so uh, we can talk more about those issues uh, in a bit, but um, Speedy, Roy Harper, is white. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got like two drug dealing or drug addict buddies in that story. One is black and one is Asian. Um, and the Asian guy dies of an overdose and the black guy, um, is the one like, who's very much like, I don't know about like the, the, there's a whole thing where like Speedy is out of the picture and the other two kids are like trying to lure Green Lantern and Green Arrow into a trap. And the Asian guy is like, I hate these heroes. Let's, let's fuck them up. And the black guy is like i don't feel good about this this i don't like this is like he's the one with like more of a moral center right but they are both very much like speedy depicted as victims mm. of the very wealthy white drug kingpin oh that's, who that's is a behind all better that. message for sure yeah yeah so um while i am not going to say that the bronze age was absolutely free of problematic associations between characters of color and drugs, it was still a, a topic that was rarely discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the correlate, there's not a lot of um, in, uh, opportunity for that correlation to sort of be right. problematically reinforced on the page. Yeah. But that, um, that's certainly a lot better than what might've feared. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also want to give a plug to, there is a comic that is DC is currently publishing, um, through their, uh, black label line, which is their adult line. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just like more, uh, sometimes that just means more violent and it is the comic. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a comic that where Batman had full frontal nudity. That was a black label book. (laughs) 
but theoretically it's like more, you know, complex, mature themes. Um, and this comic absolutely falls into that category. It's called the other history of the DC universe. And, um, each issue is the story of a, a classic character of color from DC telling, basically retelling the events of their career from their perspective. Oh, interesting. Okay. So the writer is John Ridley, who is black. And um, the first issue is Black Lightning. Um, telling his, you know, his version of events. The second issue is Mal, uh, Mal Duncan from the Teen Titans and his girlfriend, Bumblebee. Um, so it's sort of an interview with both of them. And they actually call Speedy out for a lot of his racism during that era, which is definitely there. And I, I hate to say it because I love that character, but he was a douchebag to Mal. Um, I, I'm very glad and, you mentioned that for a couple of reasons. Um, all of that, but also I saw Bumblebee on the list and I thought, I didn't know the Transformers were a cartoon back then. And like, <laughs> but anyway, sorry, go on. Um, uh, yeah, and the third issue is um, Katana, who is Japanese. Nice. Um, and yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Um, it's it's such an interesting look again, because these characters are all introduced during the bronze age. It's a really in-depth look at the bronze age. Mm -hmm. That's not from that really paternalistic white gaze. Um, and the, the art is incredible. Like just wholeheartedly right. recommend. Um, so I want to go ahead. Sorry. Just to add really quickly, um, on the topic of black characters existing to teach white characters a valuable lesson, John Stewart was also introduced initially, like he is considered by many to be DC's first black superhero, but he shows up for one issue so that how Jordan can learn a valuable lesson about racism. And then he wasn't, it, that's why he was introduced to be in that one single issue. Of course. And it was pure happenstance that in subsequent years they dusted him off and brought him back and now he's a major character and obviously he's very well known because he was in the animated series right um but yeah that a lot of these characters were not created to be protagonists in their own right right that makes a lot of sense and, and i want to talk about some of the other kind of diversity here but it, it just talking about all the way these political issues come up uh, made me think one, one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, we talked at the very beginning, we we're talking about the start of comic books, about how a number of these characters were very much part, you know, they were written as as America was in World War Two. And we had characters who were, you know, fighting the Nazis and things like that. <clears throat> now, obviously, by this point in time, um, with the code is fading, but also, you know, early 70s, mid 70s. This is like the end of the Vietnam era. This is when we're having the church hearings about all the terrible things the CIA had been doing. This is Watergate and government corruption. Um, does that kind of stuff start making its way into these into these stories? And like, um, and I can't imagine like any of our heroes going to fight the commies in Vietnam or anything like that. But I'm I'm wondering, do we have like, you know, Oliver Queen going to anti-war protests or people talking about the, um, you know, uh, corruption in the American government and where that puts them as heroes or anything like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um... Uh, I mean, you do have characters who 
I can't think of any examples off the top of my head of characters actively fighting in Vietnam while it was ongoing. Mm -hmm. Um, There were still some war comics at the time, although uh, other, a lot of genres were sort of fading, like war comics were dying, Westerns, romance, um, and horror comics were making a comeback now that they could. Um, But I can't think off the top of my head of any characters who yeah were active duty during the war but many many characters have vietnam in their backstories or they did and then that sort of rolled forward so like the punisher is a yeah i was thinking of him yeah really prominent example and also deathstroke right um but they are not exactly heroes especially deathstroke um and tony stark he like in in the movies we get him having his war experience in afghanistan but he also has a uh an origin story tied to vietnam i think yeah absolutely and that's why i think that's one of the reasons too and you know we're going to get into it a little bit but i think whereas the uh introduction of black characters is uh while exploitative um generally like hey here is a hero they're a good person they're on the team it's a lot more ambivalent with asian characters Mm. and you see a lot of um you see a lot of villains as well and i think that there was the the anti-asian racism which as we know is still very much with us um was uh recently demonstrated yeah yeah, so let, it was quite high at the time. Um, so let's but, let's talk about those characters because yeah, uh, and I think I, I think I've alluded to, and I think you you've mentioned it before that in the same way that some of the black characters are tied to black exploitation movies, this is the era of the the kung fu movies and stuff like that, starting with Bruce Lee, but then also becoming kind of exploitative in some ways. Uh, and well, there's some very much not. Uh, so tell us more about kind of Asian representation and also how this ties into what's happening in pop culture. Yeah, so it's really a mixed bag because I mean, first of all. There have been Asian characters in comics uh, since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Not very many. Very few and far between. Very, very offensive portrayals. But when you think about the fact that uh, the birth of superhero comics was during World War II, right. there, there are a lot of very, very, very offensive um, portrayals of Japanese people mm-hmm. um, in those Golden Age comics. Um, and you also see... Like, this is not a DC or Marvel character, but there have been many comics about um, Green Hornet and Kato. Mm. And Kato, when he was originally created um, prior to, just prior to World War II, was Japanese. And then uh, he was quickly retconned to be Chinese um, because, like, his, his um, nation of origin has moved around over the years, uh-huh. um, depending on our country's political relationship with various parts of Asia. I was going to say, when we're war Japan, he becomes Chinese. When Chinese becomes communist, does he quickly become like Indonesian or something? Or what do they do with him at that point? It's, I, I can't remember exactly because it has changed so much. And then, of course, it also changes based on um, if there's been a live action version mm. um, to, to coincide with the uh, nationality and ethnicity of the actor playing him. Um, Bruce Lee again, like, um, and so here, yeah, go ahead, sir. So it's uh, Asian representation. Again, I am, I am white. I am, this is not my lane and I am going to try to 
speak to this as knowledgeably as I can with the understanding that it, I can never be as knowledgeable as someone who's lean. It is. Um, but it is very much a mixed bag because you do start to see heroes um, like Colleen Wing, who's introduced in 1974. Shang-Chi is a major, major one in 73. Um, and he will have a movie soon. I'm very excited about it. Um, and Shang-Chi was a major character who had a comic that ran for like 125 issues and a spin-off book. And like, he was a big deal throughout the 70s. Mm. Um, but you also have Katana over at DC in 1983. But then you also have like characters who are heroes, but they're jerks like Sunfire with the X-Men in 1970. Right. Like he's not, he's not a pleasant character. Um, you have, you have villains like uh, Ra's al Ghul, who is not <laughs> Ra's al Ghul. is a complicated character <laughs> a to talk about in terms of representation. He is most likely based on a lot of conflicting canon. He is most likely Arab and Chinese. Okay. Like uh, some combination. Um, but he was also based on Vincent Price. Yeah. And, uh, Neil Adams, the artist who created him, has this very terrible, long-winded quote where he's like, he's not a man of the East or the West. He's not Asian or white. He is just sheer cunning. And it's like, oh, okay, no but... but <laughs> can, can, we say, dude, can we say exotification? It's, it, it, there's so much Orientalism in this era, mm -hmm. and there's also... There's so much... Um, well, like I said, there's... there's um, like the Wonder Woman thing where she learns Kung Fu from an old blind Chinese man. There right. is so much appropriation. Um, exactly. And yep. so many characters I mean, this is, going to the this is when we far get, East. This is when we get Iron Fist, who literally is Absolutely. that story of the, the white man who goes to the East and, and becomes appropriate, you know, be, becomes the Kung Fu master and then comes back. 100% Iron Fist is the most shining example of this trope, which predated superhero comics and continues to this day, absolutely. But yeah, there are tons of characters who are white and they often they go to Asia or they meet an Asian person and they learn martial arts and they become better at Kung Fu than any Asian person ever was and take on all of these like titles and attributes and sometimes clothing and like fakey Asian fonts on the, you know, title page of their comic and whatever, oh, but they're not, <laughs> they're still white people. And like Batman is one of them. Oh yeah. Batman absolutely went to like Tibet and learned Kung Fu. Um, that's still very much a part of his character. And um, actually, so that DC's primary character in this genre is, probably Richard Dragon, mm. um, who is, is basically Iron Fist without an Iron Fist. Um, and DC's got a movie coming up um, that... Uh, it's a Batman movie, but it's Batman, Richard Dragon, Lady Shiva, who is one of these um, Asian characters who's introduced at this point, and um, Bronze Tiger, Ben Turner, who is one of the black exploitation characters introduced at this point. Right. Um, 
it's the four of them like on an adventure together. But in the new animated movie that DC is doing, um, Richard Dragon is Asian. He is in fact drawn to look like Bruce Lee. So like, oh nice. That's, that's what, that it very much feels like they looked at Iron Fist and said, "Hold my beer." Yeah. I, on that note, by the way, I want to just give a quick plug for the TV show Warrior, which is on HBO Max now. It started on uh, Cinemax, and it is um, it, it has the Cinemax treatment. It's the um, Game of Thrones idea of let's do lots of exposition in brothels and stuff like that. But it is it's based on. Uh, a story idea created by Bruce Lee that many people claim uh, Kung Fu with David Carradine was kind of a ripoff of, but it's about um, Chinese immigrants in San Francisco who are skilled with martial arts. And it's both a great martial arts story and also just a very good story about immigration and and racism and xenophobia. There's an awful lot of um, mirrors to today and where it is a story of Asian, you know, Chinese people and the, their culture there and, and the use of martial arts. And it's important in that, in that culture. So just a kind of quick plug, especially once you mentioned Bruce Lee. Uh, well, it's funny that you mentioned David Carradine because um, initially uh, Marvel wanted to do a Kung Fu comic, like that was a spinoff, mm-hmm. like uh, the comic tie in to the show and the rights to that fell through, which is why they ended up with iron fist and said, cause they had to make a new character. Oh, that's hilarious. That's the connection. Yeah. There. So I, we're, we're already almost an hour, and I don't want this to go too long, but I know that a couple of other different uh, other groups get uh, represented here, and I want you to kind of go through them in a second. But first I just want to ask, one thing I don't see on this list is uh, Latinx characters. Is that just because you didn't happen to mention them, or is that a, a group that is, is quite uh, uh, um, visibly not included in this sort of push towards diversity at this time? It is the latter. I actually, I did some, I did some looking and I tried to find characters. Um, you, you really don't see, it's really the late eighties that they start to come in, which is not the era that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and often the ones that we do see at this point, I mean, I could have maybe come up with a handful, like maybe four right. fairly obscure characters. Um, who are villains. Um, the one hero, like bona fide hero who's still around that I was able to turn up is, um, fire who, uh, she is Brazilian mm-hmm. and she was part of the super friends, which is oh, cool. or, like, she was not on the TV show. She was in the tie in comic. Um, nice. and so that's why she appeared during this era because they had like a whole, they just like had, had mm-hmm. heroes from all different countries. Um, and she, has been a justice league member and stuff. I, she, I'm a big fan of that character, but for the most part, no, the only one that I really found that was very much like a bronze age character is, um, white tiger who, uh, so he actually, he's Puerto Rican. He's, I believe the first Puerto Rican superhero in mainstream comics. Um, but he actually comes out of that, same kung fu craze because um, mm. Marvel had um, they had a magazine called The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. It oh, was God. not a comic book. Okay, um, it had a slightly different trim size, and it was black and white, and it had um, like prose stories in it, and interviews, and, like reviews of kung fu movies, and like drawings that were like how to learn kung fu, like. I would love to see a kid try and pull a move that they learned from this magazine on somebody. Like, don't do that. <laughs> That's a bad idea. Um, 
it's, it's not a good plan. Um, but uh, because it was a magazine and not a comic, it was not subject to the Comics Code Authority. Oh, okay. And so they could push the boundaries a little bit. Like, so, so the, the Marvel characters, like Marvel comic book characters would appear in this magazine. So Shang-Chi was in it all the time. Iron Fist, um, Misty Knight, and Colleen Wing as um, the Daughters of the Dragon um, and then you would have other characters who would appear in the magazine first and then make their way into the regular comics. So it started with the Sons of the Tiger, which are like these three best friends, like a white guy, a black guy, an Asian guy who all learned martial arts from an old Asian man. Right. Um, and they have like a magical amulet that they share. And then they give the amulet to this guy, Hector Ayala, or he, they throw it away because they have a fight and he finds it and he becomes White Tiger. So... Gotcha. <laughs> That's, yeah. Um, but uh, again, in terms of like pushing those comics code boundaries, like right. those Daughters of the Dragon stories, like there's one where Colleen Wing gets uh, kidnapped by a drug kingpin who like forces her to take heroin. And of course she becomes addicted after one hit. And then like there's some there's a scene where he's like clearly about to assault her. Mm -hmm. That is, it is graphic. Not, it is not, it's not graphic. It is explicit about what is about to happen Mm. in a way that I would be shocked to see in a comic book today. Makes sense. And then Misty rescues her. Um, And then there's another story where Misty's like, old best friend shows up and like, is like, Misty, remember our times together? And then it turns out she's a vampire and she wants to bite Misty and make Misty a vampire too, which vampire is not allowed. Right. But also like... Nothing homoerotic about vampires, certainly. It's, it's, <laughs> it is exactly as erotic as any vampire story, which is to say it's extremely erotic. <laughs> and not surprised. the relationship between Misty and Colleen is also very deliberately homoerotic right. in a way that, again, you could not they could not have done in the regular comics. So... It, all of these themes of the comics code and these complex social issues and these increasingly diverse characters and these trends like black exploitation and kung fu they all they're all interconnected right and and in some ways it also makes sense that like the the two sort of uh you know communities that are getting the sort of um cultural push being you know with black exploitation and and kung fu that's not happening with Latinx characters. And so it kind of makes sense that that's not getting the same attention in the comic book world. Again, showing the, the, the direct tie into the pop culture. I, I want to get more into the comic code, the comic code thing and what can be done outside of it when we talk about heroes on the screen. But I, let's just quickly just, uh, cause I think it's important. Uh, if you want to briefly mention the uh, native American and Jewish com- uh, characters who also pop up during this time. Yeah. So um, like Asian characters, Native American characters have always been in comics, but it was always, they were depicted very much as the Tontos. like, yeah, like a thing of the past, you know, Hollywood Indian, cowboys and Indians, very, like very, very offensive dated stereotypes. Right. Um, and which is not to say, again, these are not indigenous writers right. who are or, or artists who are working on these characters at this point um but you do start to see um characters like dawnstar with the legion of superheroes in 1977 snowbird with alpha flight in 79 and danny moonstar 
with uh, the X-Men in 1982. Of course, they all have like animal nature powers because of course it's very hard to find a Native American character who does not have animal or nature themed powers. As do some of the um, African, not African American, but African characters we get at the yeah, time as well. So yeah, it makes sense. Absolutely. Um, but uh, I think this is very clearly a response to the Native American rights movement mm-hmm. that um, we saw, see at this time in history. Um, because once at this point, by and large, Native American characters stop being the problematic stereotype of, uh, like, scalping people and start to be a still problematic (laughs) stereotype of, like, you know that one crying Indian commercial with the pollution? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's they they become very much like wise keepers of the land, which is I mean I do not mean to be dismissive about um, the role of indigenous people as stewards of the land, who absolutely maintain many parts of certainly this country mm-hmm. much better than white people have done it. Um, but aside from the characters that I've named, you start to see Native American characters just generally, like, not as superheroes, but just, like, as people who will show up, again, to teach white characters a valuable lesson. Like, it happens a few times in Green Lantern, Green Arrow run, where, like, there's one story where they're, like, trying to stop mining or logging or something that's happening that's, like, destroying their their home, and they've given up. Like, this white businessman is going to bulldoze every like all of their native lands and they just can't fight it anymore so green arrow puts on a war bonnet to inspire (laughs) them and they're like you're so right we are a proud people and it's like oh my god like it's well-intentioned but it's not okay can can i call that dances with green arrows (laughs) (laughs) yes it just it uh it's like please please stop please give that back to and again, you, I mean, whoever you stole that from, you see, to me, this is a time where it really is fascinating seeing how the seventies is a, uh, a period in history that I've studied quite a bit in terms of cultural movements. And, you know, this is a time when the, the hippies are becoming, you know, starting to have like, you know, moments of like, right, what do we do now that we're not protesting all the time and, and searching for meaning and stuff like that. And in a very kind of appropriative way, this is when you have a lot of, you know, white middle-class Americans, you know, going towards either Native Americans or actual Indians in terms of like, you know, going to have, you know, powwows on reservations or going to, you know, join uh, Hare Krishnas or, or, or things like this. And, you know, uh, I'm trying to be very clear here in my language that I'm being incredibly dismissive of the white people circling this out, not either of those two actual movements. But, you know, it makes sense that we would find their, that way into comic books as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's absolutely like, let's all put some feathers in our hair and not actually ask any right. native people any questions and then lastly um kind of bringing this full circle a bit because we talked in our very beginning episodes about how a lot of these original heroes were very jewish coded by jewish creators but they weren't named as jewish and now we do start to get some either characters already existed having judaism very explicitly written into their storylines or new characters created talk a little bit about the uh, sort of rise of jewish heroes yeah so again it's it's very small um I mean, the, 
like you said, these characters have been coded for a very long time. And like Ben Grimm has been coded as Jewish since he debuted in the early 60s, was not made explicitly Jewish, although everybody knew he was Jewish until like 2000 something. Right. Um, But you do have Kitty Pride showing up on the X-Men and she is Jewish. She is Jewish right away. It's, it's very clear. Um, she used to have this wonderful curly frizzy hair that I miss so much. <laughs> um, just the cutest little thing. Um, this is where uh, Magneto is made like he's given his Holocaust survivor right. backstory that didn't exist before. Prior to this, he was just like a, uh, uh, monologuing supervillain and which is now he's given this much richer which again is another trend that we're seeing yeah. he's not just evil for the sake of being evil he has he has a point he has a, a, a yeah yeah and, and, and to me that's very interesting because when, like i have often on other episodes of this podcast talked about how the believable villain is something that's so important to me about a scene not even believable but where you know it's clear that the villain thinks they're the good guy of their own story and I think of the today idea of Magneto as one of the chief examples of that up there with someone like Killmonger in terms of like, you know, he has seen the in, intolerance at its absolute worst and the, the dangers of the Professor X kind of idea of, no, we'll just we'll, we'll just uh, get them to love us. It'll be OK. And and so it's, it's so fascinating to me to realize like that comes, you know, 20, 30 years into the history of the character, I guess more like 10, 15 years into the history of the character. I'm bad at math. Um, but you know, it's not, it's not originally baked in because I think for so many people, like the first thing they think of, if they're not a huge comic book person, uh, when they hear about, you know, Magneto is Holocaust survivor and how that shaped his ideas. I mean that, that first X-Men movie, that's the opening scene. Yeah. And it, it absolutely, for me, that was my first encounter with the X-Men and it absolutely shaped my understanding of the character, but it, yeah, it's, it's it was brought in later and I think it's very telling that it was brought in not by people, not by the generation that lived through world war two, but by their children. Yeah. Understandably. Because, um, this is when, this is around when you start to, this was around when people started to be able to talk about it. Right. Um, because before that, from, from everything that I've read, you know, survivors, didn't and couldn't talk about it because the trauma was too immediate for for a few decades right um and then the other character that i've noted down here it's a much more minor character but um al rothstein Mm. has gone by adam he's a dc character he's gone by adam smasher and nuclon um he i'm not sure that he was actually explicitly jewish until the early 90s but his name is albert rothstein i was gonna say uh, but like you know i hear grim i don't necessarily think Jewish. Kitty Pride isn't Jewish. You tell me Albert Rothstein, like, put a yarmulke on his head. That's his... Exactly. Well, you couldn't because he had a mohawk. Okay. But... (laughs) But, yeah. Although I will say on the flip side, I, you know, you and I coming from New York and our backgrounds say that, I knew someone for a long time who uh, came from a very rural central part of the United States who talked about meeting someone, a friend of hers named Annika Ginsberg. And I said, oh, so you met you had a Jewish friend back then. And she looked at me and goes, you think Annika was Jewish? 
So. <laughs> yeah. we, we did just make clear, confirm. She she kind of talked to your friend and confirmed yes, the friend was Jewish. But yeah, again, it's the idea. Like, there's some names that are obvious to some people, but um, I, I would think Rothstein, if nothing else, because it's so connected to anti-Semitic mythology that like uh-huh. everyone would know it's Jewish uh, Jewish name. But yeah, you know. I literally just had a conversation with people yesterday about a DC character named Eddie Bloomberg, who uh, is a sidekick to Blue Devil and eventually became Kid Devil. And then he became a real devil and they gave him horns. And I was like, that's problematic. And a couple people said, Bloomberg's a Jewish name. And I was like, oh, is it? And I will say there, like, here I, when I lived in Wisconsin, a very, very German state, there was a number of names that I heard. I was like, oh, they're Jewish. No, it's just German. But yes, understandable. Um, but so my point in including, including Al in this, besides that he's adorable, is that um, I don't think up to this point a name like that would have flown, even if you weren't, even if they, the comics weren't explicitly stating that the character was Jewish. Like, right. all of those names prior to this are so, so waspy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. So let's talk a little bit more about the comic code thing, because I'm also interested in how the this is a point where there's been a Superman TV show in the past and things like that. But we're now starting to get a lot more of these characters appearing on screen, both the little screen and, and towards the end of this time, the, the first of the Superman movies. Um, and, and of course, one of the first things I thought of is when you're talking about how, like, um, you know, you couldn't have Catwoman for a long time. Eartha Kitt Catwoman, who's very sexual, I remember this as an eight-year-old boy, and, and understanding this, uh, is, is a very big part of the Batman 66 show. And, you know, we then get Wonder Woman and the Hulk on TV, and, and the, I think the Flash series at this point. Is there that same idea of, like, these shows can, obviously a lot of these shows are kid shows and stuff, but that these shows can also do things that you can't do in comic books, or that you, it's, you couldn't do in comic books before because they're not subject to the comics code? Yeah, I mean, certainly the use of Catwoman in the Batman 66 show spurred the reintroduction of her into the comics. But I, to be honest, am not familiar enough with um, the content of the Wonder Woman or Hulk show. The Flash show is really the 90s mm-hmm. um, to to say how much of a, an influence they would have had. I just think that the comics code in general was getting weaker, had been getting weak. I mean, its height was the mid fifties and we're 20 years on from that at this point. I do think in general that the existence of more forms of popular media Mm -hmm. would weaken it because quite frankly, parents no longer cared as much what was in comic books well, they didn't care as much it was in comic books. They cared what was in rock and roll. Right. That makes sense. So This is when the, Dungeons and Dragons is, is a satanic influence that people are afraid of and things like that. So we're, we're not worrying about right. comic books anymore. Yeah. Comic books are quaint in a lot of ways. Right. Um, I mean, the parents grew up on them. So they, they grew up and they grew up on the comic book code version of them. So they probably thought they were, you know, they're safe and fine. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, know, um, I know also one thing you'd mentioned is because we talked before about how the comic book code was important because if it didn't have that stamp, like people wouldn't sell it. This is also, if I understand you correctly, the time when the comic book store starts to come about. And, and does that also make, is that you're no longer needing a major retailer to be willing to sell these because the comic book store, they certainly don't care about the code? Well, the comic books, I think it would probably depend on the retailer. Um, you definitely, like the underground comics came about sort of, as a movement in the 60s and 
still existed to a certain extent in the 70s, although it was shifting. Um, a lot of those comics were moving out of the underground and into the mainstream, and I would imagine a lot of them didn't have the code. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of retailers were willing to sell comics without the code. But um, if I remember correctly, um, so there were there are the two, as I had mentioned previously, there are a couple of major drug storylines um in this era uh one of which we already touched on a little bit with um speedy and green arrow but slightly prior to that there was a spider-man one involving um peter's friend uh uh harry osborne the son of the green goblin um and there was a real pushback from the comics code about this story and if I remember correctly, they actually did go ahead and publish those Spider-Man comics without the seal. Mm. And it, it, it was fine. Like they, they got away with it. Um, but it's also, I think, important to note for both of these stories, they, they were very much... They always treated drugs like something bad. Right. The difference was, A, even talking about drugs, and B, not treating drug addicts as something bad. Not treating them as criminals, mm. but as victims of the exploitative drug industry. Um, I mean, that's progressive today, let alone back then. It was, it was incredibly progressive, um, and... The uh, the Green Lantern Green Arrow story, um, Snowbirds Don't Fly, that reveals that um, Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy is a heroin addict, and then you know he has a night of withdrawal and he's all better. <laughs> I mean, they're not they're not like medically accurate, um, and the the slang is is dated, and oh, it's they're they're they are kind of a mess. These comics, like I love these comics so much they are they are very much a product of their time but like snowbirds don't fly um got like a some it was like uh blanking on the right word it got like a commendation from john lindsay the mayor of new york at the time because (laughs) it was but it was considered so important because it was it was speaking to young people about a a problem that was really pressing at the time and doing it in language that we look at now as being very silly. And I would not be surprised if kids at the time also looked at it as being very <laughs> silly. But, you know, we've talked about before about how censorship, the, the censorship of the comics code, you know, it squashed some stuff that were like, who cares if there are vampires? And it squashed some stuff that were like, well, I don't actually need that woman to be falling out of her costume but it also silenced a lot of really important right. stories. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and so it's nice to see it losing its ability to do that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like in some way this is kind of the comic book equivalent of the after-school special that you and I grew up with, where it's like, okay, they're, they're, they're clearly making a point that adults want to have made, and, and it's maybe going to be less than subtle um, and, and made by adults, but still, like, you know, an important thing that people are going to pay attention to and care about because it's addressing something that people think is important. Well, actually, um, so the 
Snowbirds Don't Fly, the original Speedy addiction storyline was in 1971. Um, the new Teen Titans formed in 1980 and pretty early in that. So I'm not sure if it's technically Bronze Age, probably around 1983. Um Speedy was not, he had been an original Teen Titan. He was not a member of the new Teen Titans, but he shows up very briefly for some very special issues about drugs. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but they were, they were very much um, uh, after school special kind of, co- like they were um, anti-drug specials. Mm-hmm. They were published in partnership with Keebler. So there's like Keebler Elf on the cover. Like they're not part of the story, but like the Keebler logo is on there. And I guess you could like buy a box of cookies and get these (laughs) comics. There's a superhero who was specifically created to stop teens from taking drugs. He's only in these three issues and he'll just show up and be like, don't take those drugs, Tommy. And the kid will be like, oh, I almost made a terrible mistake. But like also Speedy is there. Because he's a character people actually liked. So yes, they they also did the very, very over-the-top, this-is-your-brain-on-drugs kind of stuff. I was just thinking of, like... But from both a positive and negative. Because, like, you know, for my generation, it was the, like, I'm not a chicken, you're a turkey uh, line when someone tells them, oh, you don't want to do drugs, you're a chicken. I can't believe I'm explaining this ad. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's the the, your-brain-on-drugs five years earlier. But, like, those ads were also effective. You know, like, I... Yeah, uh, far too heavy-handed and marijuana legalization and all that. But also, like, yeah, I mean, I think it, that that ad came to mind a lot. You know, when I was young and offered some chances to do things that I probably shouldn't have been doing at that age or at any age. Um, See, nobody even offered me drugs. I wasn't cool <laughs> enough. I was so ready to say no because I'd watch cartoon all stars to the rescue, <laughs> and no, but nobody came along and was like, "Hey, do you want to smoke some crack with me?" Which from what I was given to understand would be happening almost constantly. I mean, I grew up in the heart of New York City. I, my impression is that you had a somewhat more suburban experience. How dare you? <laughs> I grew up in Brooklyn Heights. Okay, no, fair enough, fair enough. Then. That, that's my misunderstanding. Uh, I, anyway. As a diehard Manhattanite, I'm trying to bite back the feeling of, well, it's Brooklyn, it's still suburbs. But uh, yes, I understand what you're talking about. I lived in Brooklyn for a long time. But no, that is surprising that you didn't have that experience ever. Uh, I certainly had it fairly regularly. Um, anyway, enough of our childhood exploration. Uh, yeah, so um, I think that kind of covers a lot of the big things. I know we had a whole section we we're going to do on social justice in the comics, but we've hit on a lot of those things. Uh, and we're coming up on 90 minutes. So is there any kind of one la- one or two last points you wanted to make sure we got into? Um, yeah, well, you talked about uh, superheroes on the big screen. And one thing um, that also comes up during this era um, – is the idea of creator credits mm. and um, paying creators for uh, you know the enormous amounts of money that they generated for the characters? Um, so, from the time that the industry started um, across the board, it's pretty much been you get a page rate for what you're doing. So you get paid for the comic book, but you don't own the characters mm. and if the character goes on to be profitable, like, you know, if you say create Superman and then he's selling a million t-shirts and lunch boxes and action figures and God knows what else over the next 80 years, you don't see a penny of that. Um, and this started to be a thing that people were talking about in this era, but uh, the premiere of Superman, the movie really brought it, 
to much greater attention. Oh, because Simon, um, uh, they were specifically credited, Siegel and Schuster were specifically credited in that, right? Well, they, I'm not actually sure if they were credited in the original, like, theatrical release of the movie, but it, they basically came forward and it was revealed that they were living in poverty. Oh, wow. That this massive, I, I remember reading a story that may or may not have been apocryphal, um, but it was like, like Christopher Reeve was like on Johnny Carson and a man stood, an old man stood up in the audience and he said, my name is Jerry Siegel and I created Superman in 1938 and I'm not getting a penny from this movie. Wow. Which I want to double check that that's true, that that actually happened. Cause it's a, it's like too good of a story almost yeah. to be true. Um, and Jerry Siegel absolutely was screwed over time and time again by DC, but he was also a bit of a, of a, a tale teller, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, but yeah, like it, that kind of thing really brought attention to the fact that, you know, so many of these creators had created incredibly profitable IP yeah. and were essentially being cheated out of any profits from these major companies that were raking in the bucks and the sad thing is except in a few specific cases with really uh influential creators you don't like they'll be credited and mm-hmm. the like you'll see you know such and such created by jack kirby on the in the credits but is the Kirby estate getting any money from the movie? Mm, I don't know about that. Well, I was going to ask, actually, because last episode we talked about kind of the rise of the celebrity creator, Stan Lee especially, and somewhat Jack Kirby, but mostly Stan Lee. Do you think they had something, the, the attention given to those two had something to do with the, uh, a lot more attention now being paid to, to creators? Um, not now, yes. In the Bronze Age, no. Um, Jack Kirby was deeply unhappy with a lot of what was happening at Marvel Mm. during the Bronze Age. He actually left Marvel and went to work for DC, which is when he created um, the whole Fourth World saga, so Mr. Miracle and Darkseid. Yeah, all of that stuff um, was all basically because he didn't... Marvel wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do with Thor, so he said, then I'll make up my own gods at DC, and I'll do whatever I want with them. Which is also um, kind of hilarious, because you know if he then goes and creates Darkseid, and then a couple of years later, uh, Marvel creates Thanos, who I, I can't go into history, but I know many people say is kind of a ripoff of Darkseid, so... The- oh, he's absolutely a ripoff of Darkseid. And then, of course, when they made the Justice League movie, they couldn't use Darkseid because it would look like they were ripping off Thanos, even though Thanos is a ripoff of Darkseid. So they use Steppenwolf and it's all very stupid. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I mean, when I say like prominent creators, I mean stuff like, you know, Brian Michael Bendis today, who had like a certain amount of control over whether or not. Marvel would continue to publish Jessica Jones comics right. that were not by him. Mm. Um, but does that mean that he actually made any money off of the TV show? He's not listed as an executive producer, so I don't think that he did. And you see things like, um, you know, one of the creators of Rocket Raccoon, when the Guardians of the Galaxy movies came out, um, people were like, wait a minute, this man, he has... Um, I'm 
forgive me, I can't remember specifically uh, what it is, but he has some very serious health issues and he mm. has enormous medical bills um and there were a lot of like there was a lot of crowdfunding to help support him but like these this movie was making millions of dollars and he wasn't seeing any of it and he desperately needed it yeah Uh, yeah i mean i think it's it's it's, and that is unfortunately still an issue to some extent to this day so yeah it's definitely good to to know about that here yeah i mean i think that it it's not um an ethical question about the content of the comics but it's absolutely an ethical question yeah i mean i I think we we've long we've long said that like we talk about the issues that happen on screen or on page themselves but also you know the issues about the creation about the fandoms about all these things you know so i think it's it's definitely a a part of the story that's important well jessica thank you so much as always um i've really learned so much i'm sure the audience has and i think it's kind of given me yet again so many things i want to go back and read um I want you to let our uh, fans. T- uh, I want you to let our listeners know a little bit more about where they can find your creations. And I, I will start by saying, I greatly appreciate that we um, got to talk about a little bit the Christopher Reeve Superman movie, without you doing to our listeners what you did to me, of wrecking all of my 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 childhood ideas that Christopher Reeve is the epitome of Superman. But but I will say that it was actually a quite enjoyable experience. What I'm talking about is that Jessica's on a. Uh, podcast herself called flights and tights where they do reviews of different superman stuff and it um if you grew up with christopher reeve superman might give you a a, a different impression of that but one that i i I came away really appreciating so if you want to talk more about uh the podcast and also uh, you do a lot of writing on these kind of things that our listeners may be very interested in yeah i have no beef against christopher (laughs) reeve himself i think he was a wonderful superman my beef is with richard donner and richard lester that's fair like I don't think the movies are good. I think Christopher Reeve is wonderful. Yeah. He was actually my um, neighbor, yes. so I have very fond memories of him. But yeah, no, I just met the movies in general. Was this when you were getting offered crack in the streets of Manhattan and I was not in the <laughs> suburbs of Brooklyn No, Heights? no, no, no. This was when I was a very young child, so I barely remember it. But we lived in a, a brownstone with many apartments, and he had the top apartment. And I got to have the distinction because – sorry, this is completely off topic, but just a fun story to tell <laughs> – um, my father, who was a young lawyer at the time, was the attorney for the building. And Christopher Reeve wanted to add a, a roof that would go against the, the co- I think it was a co-op, and go against the terms of it. So I got to tell people in grade school that my daddy sued Superman. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need to give him roof access. How is he going to get back into his apartment after flying? Right, clearly, clearly. But anyway, so t- t- tell the listeners about uh, your podcast and, uh, and your writings. Yes, so it's called Flights and Tights, a Superman movie podcast, and you can find it on iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I am also a contributing editor at bookriot.com, and I write about mostly comic books, but also book books. Um, I like those, too. Um, And you can find me on Twitter at Jess Plummer. Awesome. Awesome. Definitely definitely check that out. I think uh, your writings, your podcast, it's all great stuff and gives a lot to learn, and it's through those that I... uh, basically just yoinked you into being a frequent guest on this. So, uh, or as you said, uh, uh, the, co- the co- was it cousin, I don't remember my different strokes. Oliver. Cousin Oliver, thank you, uh, of this podcast. And um, folks, as always, we want to hear what you what you have to say. I think we're now getting into the period where um, for some of you, you may have grown up reading these, or at least you uh, may have heard about them, or they were the first to start collecting. If you then uh, were a collector in the 80s and started looking backward in history, love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed, or just your favorite or least favorite from this time. Um, or anything else that we discussed. You can find us. Uh, I do all my podcasting under the name The Ethical Panda. It's where I do this podcast. as well as my podcast on Star Wars and a couple of others. 
You can uh, find us on Facebook and on Twitter by searching for The Ethical Panda. You can email us at theethicalpanda at gmail.com. And of course, all the podcasts that I do are part of the larger Stranded Panda podcast network. On that podcast network, you'll find uh, the podcasts I do, but also great podcasts about the DC Universe, uh, Star Trek, uh, my own Star Wars, the MCU, where they've just done a great series of episodes on the um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and they're going to be doing some great stuff about Loki coming up soon. So a lot of great stuff to check out there, and it's all at strandedpanda.com. So again, Jessica, thank you so much to everyone else. Thank you, and have a great day. 